body for 30 minutes. But right now it's time for Pandora's Lunchbox. My name is R. Wolf, and I'm filling in for Mike. You know, Mike told me, and I, I don't remember the exact number, but he did indicate that he is uh, on the verge of celebrating something like 20 or 25 years of Pandora's Lunchbox. He's been doing this show for a long time, coming in here, and he's usually quite breathless when he gets in because he's a very, very busy man. He's a professional broadcaster with Michigan Radio. I don't know if you knew that about Mike, but hes uh, it's really wonderful that he has this long-term involvement with WCBN and that hes uh, he just comes down here and improvises and endlessly surprises us with the things he digs up because human nature is just wonderful and ridiculous and He's got all the evidence. So I'm going to do my best to fill in for him tonight. And he did send me, let's get this microphone over here. He did send me a, a very important piece of information. This is a news flash that uh, that came out um, today. The Toledo Museum of Art and the Italian Ministry of Heritage and Cultural Activities announced today that they've reached an agreement for the repatriation of an object in the museum's collection. The attic red-figured skifos and earthenware drinking vessel decorated with the story of the return of Hephaestus to Olympus is attributed to the Cleophon painter of Athens, Greece, and maybe it's the painter Cleophon of Athens, Greece, as the case may be, and dates to approximately 420 BCE. Per the agreement, the vessel will remain on view at the Toledo Museum of Art for four years after which the museum may ask to renew the loan or request another significant object from the Italian government as part of a continuing and rotating cultural exchange. The Toledo Museum of Art purchased the Skyphos, some people might say Skyphos, it's S-K-Y-P-H-O-S, but I would say Skyphos probably, uh, they purchased it in 1982 for $90,000. It's a $90,000 skifos. They purchased it with funds uh, gifted from Edward Drummond Libby. Is this clear? The provenance of the object was called into question in 2017 by Christos Sirogianis, uh, a forensic archaeologist, after which the museum began an internal investigation and contacted the Italian authorities. The vessel has been on display as part of the museum's permanent collection since its acquisition and was included in the 1996-97 special exhibition, The Fire of Hephaestus, large classical bronzes from North American collections, which originated at the Toledo Museum of Art and subsequently traveled to the Tampa Museum of Art in Florida. This thing depicts Hephaestus, the metalsmith for the gods, who was thrown out of Olympus by his mother, the goddess Hera, wife of Zeus. Hephaestus sought revenge by making a trap for Hera in the form of a magnificent throne. When she sat in it, however, she was stuck 
and none of the gods could free her. Dionysus, god of wine and theater, it says here, made Hephaestus drunk, and he eventually freed Hera and was reconciled with his divine family. Now, getting someone drunk is not invariably the way to bring about family reconciliation, but these are um, somebody's interpretations of ancient Greek myths devised uh, usually by men who drank a lot and usually made up rather rude stories about women, I might add. Anyway, the skiffos was used at men's drinking parties and is one of the largest such cups known. It's a very large skiffos, I guess. As a result, it would have been almost impossible to drink from and may have been used instead as a mixing bowl or crater. The Toledo Museum of Art is committed to the protection of cultural patrimony and to the responsible acquisition of archaeological materials and ancient art. Its collections management policy adheres to the strictest ethical guidelines, institutional transparency, and professional best practices. Sounds like a legal document. The Toledo Museum of Art rigorously investigates the provenance of all new acquisitions and continues to research objects already in its collections that may have questionable provenances. The museum has been proactive in resolving all ownership claims and welcomes new information on objects in their collections. Founded in 1901... The Toledo Museum of Art has earned a global reputation for its renowned collection, comprehensive education programs, and architecturally significant campus. I can attest to this because I actually spent some formative years in Toledo, Ohio in the early, early, early 1960s, and I used to go to that museum, and it was cool then. I bet it's really cool now. This information about the Toledo Museum of Art and their crater that they're discussing with the Italian government, brought to you by uh, Mike Perini, Our Wolf, Our Wolf, Pandora's Lunchbox, and WCBN-FM, with music by Domenico Scarlatti, played by Yatere Andiaparezzi, a uh, magnificent pianist from the Republic of Georgia, other side of the planet from here. Isn't that nice?
Thank you very much. Music by Domenico Scalati. Ideal when you're talking about archaeological artifacts and repatriation. This is Pandora's Lunchbox, a show about food and culture. And before we get to a, an actual song about ice cream, I'd like to share with you some important data that I dug up. It's a pretty good uh, example of a couple of uh, randomly selected, randomly but carefully selected clumps of data that were found on what the uh, Homo sapiens group refers to as the Internet. This is really weird. I don't know who put this, um, what you're about to hear on Wikipedia, but it's, uh, if you consider how much harassment Wikipedia will subject people to sometimes when they're trying to put information on there, and of course they need to do that to keep it current and, and correct, but this thing um, sort of reads like it, like it was badly translated from uh, Croatian or something, so... Uh, at times. Uh, mostly, this seems rather clear. So here you go. Ice cream is a colloidal emulsion having dispersed phase as fat globules. That's what it says. It is an emulsion which is, uh, and they already said that, which is in the end made into foam by incorporating air cells, which is frozen. See? That's... Who wrote this? To form dispersed ice cells. Hmm. Um, In the composition of ice cream, ice crystals are of most importance as they give a desirable mouth feel. (laughs) Uh, um, Ice cream is composed of water, ice, milk fat, milk protein, sugar, and air. Water and fat have highest proportions by weight, creating an emulsion. There's that word again. The trias... Okay. Triacylglycerols in fat are nonpolar and will adhere to itself by van der Waals interactions and other grammatically horrible sentence from this Wikipedia entry. Uh, Water is polar thus, comma, T-H-U-S. Water is polar thus, comma, emulsifiers are needed for dispersion of fat. Also, ice cream has a colloidal phase of foam which helps in light texture. Texture. Milk proteins, such as casein and whey protein, present present in ice cream are amphiphilic. I guess that means you like amphibians, right? Uh, Amphiphilic can absorb water. They spell adsorb with a D rather than B. Uh, They can adsorb water and form micelles micelles? micelles, yes, which will contribute to consistency. 
I hope these people don't actually make ice cream because it it's, might be dangerous to try and consume it. Sucrose, which is disaccharide, is usually used as a sweetening agent. You don't say. Um, lactose, which is sugar present in milk, will cause freezing point depression. Thus, on freezing, some water will be unfrozen and will not give hard texture. That's verbatim from, uh, or my attempt at a verbatim reading of a passage from Wikipedia. A little later, and I think probably written by a different person, um, hopefully, uh, there's this entry. It says, ice cream recipes first appeared in England in the 18th century. This recipe for ice cream appeared in Mrs. Mary's Eels Receipts in London in 1718. Uh, maybe it's Mrs. Mary Eels's, because I don't want you to think it's a happy eel that gave you this receipt or recipe. Uh, E-A-L-E-S apostrophe S. Okay. But this is, this is kind of Victorian, uh, early, uh, you know, pre or early Victorian language here. To ice cream, so it's a verb, you're going to ice the cream, right? Take tin ice pots, fill them with any sort of cream you like either plain or sweetened, or fruit in it. Shut your pots very close. To six pots, you must allow 18 or 20 pound of ice, breaking the ice very small. There will be some great pieces which lay at the bottom and top. You must have a pail and lay some straw at the bottom. Then lay in your ice and put in amongst it a pound of bay salt. B-A-Y dash salt. Set in your pots of cream and lay ice and salt between every pot that they may not touch. But the ice must lie round them on every side. Lay a good deal of ice on the top. Cover the pail with straw. Set it in a cellar where no sun or light comes. It will be froze in four hours, but it may stand longer. Then take it out just as you use it. Hold it in your hand and it will slip out. <laughs> When you, uh, when you would freeze any sort of fruit, either cherries, raspberries, currants, or strawberries, fill your tin pots with the fruit, but as hollow as you can. Put to them lemonade made with spring water and lemon juice sweetened. Put enough in the pots to make the fruit hang together. And put them in ice as you do cream. That's a, a recipe from the year 1718 for ice cream. This is Pandora's Lunchbox, a somewhat debilitated program about food and culture. My name's Arwolf. I'm filling in for Mike. The music behind me while I was talking about ice cream and all these distressing Manners was uh, music by John Cage, actually. Uh, I think it was The Mysterious Adventure we were listening to. From Boris Berman's John Cage, Music for Prepared Piano, Volume 2, American Classics on the Naxos label. Got me? Now then, let's get to the main course. This is Ice Cream, played by Sweet Emma and her Preservation Hall Jazz Band down in New Orleans, Louisiana, 
back in the early 1960s. Play my trombone man's no, no. favorite number. It's not mine. I ain't got no favorite. Ice cream.
Waller and his rhythm from 1935, which was an almost impossibly good year for Fats Waller. That's when he he um, he was about a year into making records with his little rhythm band. He was fast becoming one of America's most popular recording artists, stretching the um, artificial boundaries between jazz and popular music every step of the way. A brilliant pianist, the first jazz organist ever. As you heard, an exuberant vocalist, great band leader, and a formidably, uh, what's the word? My brain's kind of tired. I would say a prodigiously talented, prolific composer. That's the way to put it. The man wrote so many songs. In fact, he wrote 
oodles and oodles of songs that he didn't live long enough to record because Fats Waller was born May 21st, 1904, and he passed on December 15th, 1943, at the age of 39, which is a timeless um, object lesson in taking care of oneself and not checking out ahead of schedule. But I first heard Fats Waller when I was 18 years old, and I've been like this ever since. Can't stop celebrating. And I'm so glad that I've been involved here at WCBN-FM Ann Arbor all these years, periodically bringing in the Fats Waller records and hoping they make a positive difference in your existence. Let's see now. We'd like to open this third Harlem Stride Piano Marathon with one of Fats Waller's, I think, best recordings of 1929, certainly one of the finest piano solos that he ever managed to dish out. He called this one Turn On the Heat. This is Fats Waller. Let's face the music together. (laughs) 